here with with this with this idea and with this presentation. So the main thing that I wanted to explore um, in this question about untouchability and space and emotion relates somewhat to what I did in my in my dissertation before. But what I'm the new thing that I'm trying to, to do here is just to question how untouchability can be understood with bringing other concepts such as um, emotions and space. I do this in particular because when you start to read Ambedkar, you realize that when he talks about untouchability, he seems always to be talking about how being untouchable feels, but also how um, untouch being untouchable or how untouchability is expressed in certain um, spaces and places. So that is the broad kind of concept that, that, that I'm bringing in and, and the question so that I'm bringing in. So as an introduction, and just to explain like the main ideas that I'm, that I'm trying to, to figure out, it's initially, it's how can we do intellectual history uh, from the global south or from the non-west or any way you want to call it, right? Um, as you know, people like Skinner, um, when they think about intellectual history, they think of a certain political canon. But when you go out and see, when you go to India or when you go to Mexico, the problem is that you don't have that political canon to follow. So then the problem for intellectual historians that are not focusing in, uh, on, on European intellectuals is that you need to search for the things that, that are political. But this may not come as big political ideas that you can find in European canon. So they may not come as liberty. They may not come as equality. So my point, my starting point was, how would this, how can you imagine uh, intellectual history from abroad and how, what type of ideas can you find? And the main thing that I did uh, or that I have been doing in, 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 in my work is to think of, uh, of untouchability mainly as a political idea. And this political idea, it has different strands. And of course, you can discuss how untouchability relates to equality and to liberty and fraternity. But it also um, has other, <coughs> other issues that, that, that belong to questions such as emotions and space. So in this paper, as I already mentioned, I'm exploring how untouchability relates to emotion to try to make this question, make the question of untouchability more complex as just an issue of purity and pollution. So how do we turn from just understanding untouchability on those, uh, on those bases? And I bring the questions of emotions and space, but trying to problematize them as something that it's continuously being constructed. So untouchability is continuously being constructed just as space and movement, right? And the argument from there is just really to say that when Ambedkar starts to, to deal <coughs> with these notions, he can criticize the questions of space in places such as the village 
and, and the Indian village. And he can criticize this, this notion of space and claim that it's because of places like the village that untouchability exists, right? And after criticizing this, then you can sort of assume uh, a Dalit, a sort of Dalit identity rather than just a Harijan or an untouchable identity. So just to kind of express what, what I already mentioned uh, about emotions, um, I see, I understand emotions not just as something that comes from our brain that it's learned and constructed. That would be sort of a Narta Nussbaum um, understanding of emotions, which is kind of cognitive. And I'm also not taking the, the, the definition of someone like Damasio who understands emotions as being a bodily, um, just like a body reaction to certain things, which that would make it universal to everyone. So what I'm trying to say is that emotions can be understood and can be historized, but they are also being constructed um, continuously. Uh, and in this way, since emotion is more of a combination of our, of our feeling, internal feelings and affects and a combination of also what we receive from, from outside, you, you also need to to understand that how it's related to, to space and how certain spaces can trigger certain emotions and behaviors. And that's way, that's, that is the way that I sort of approach this and the way I try to read Ambedkar when he's talking about uh, places and emotions. So just to give you kind of a historical background of, of what was going on with untouchability um, before the 1930s. Um, I start mainly in the 20th century because before that you don't get a lot of writings from untouchables or untouchables intellectuals. At the end of the 19th century you get people like Ayotitas, uh, uh, Fule, which is not an untouchable, but some people kind of put them into that <coughs> into that uh, timeline. But the, the people that were talking about untouchables were mainly people that were not Dalits or that they were concerned about this question. And they started to begin to be concerned because of the politics of numbers and the enumeration and the census. And what, what was happening there is that after 1906, um, in 1906, uh, Agahan the third um, rise to to the to the government of of India to the uh, to the British officials and ask them not to count untouchables as Hindus in in uh, when they're taking into account political representation. So after that point, you get a lot of writings about Dalits and about untouchables and what and how they became a problem for for the Indian nation. They became a problem for the Indian nation in two ways. First, because uh, Indian nationalists believe that in order to get independence, they need to deal with it, they need to deal with this problem. And second, they became a problem because a lot of these same nationalists they thought that if these people went to other communities such as Muslims or the British, then they would sort of 
lose their claim to be in power. So at this point of time, in the Indian Review, a lot of people start writing about Dalits and what to do with them. And you get a sort of love towards them, but also a, sort of a, a notion of, of fear um, against, against this population that, in order to be clear, at this point in time, they didn't think of themselves as a particular community. They didn't share any language. They didn't share any particular profession. They didn't share any jati. So this is how they're being defined, but they're also being uh, thought of in, in thematics of, of love and fear. Uh, and, and here you have someone like Annie Besant. In a, in a very similar way, you have also someone like Lashpat Rai, who is thinking on, on, the, on, 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 the same, on the same lines. They cannot express and they cannot explain why Dalits continue to see themselves as Hindus, but they know that they feel this kind of unconditional love and they are the most forgiving and they have good character and so forth and so on. Finally, going to uh, tw uh, 10, 20 to 10 to 20 years in time, when Gandhi comes to India, <coughs> you get also that same, that same feeling or that same, those, those type of expression that consider the, the Dalit as a, sorry, the untouchable, as a emotional being that it's incapable in some ways of hurting uh, the Hindus. Even someone like Gandhi describes the Bangi, the sort of ideal, untouchable, as, as being the mother to the Hindus because they take care of them, they, they clean their, um, they clean them, and so forth and so on. So, but at the same time, they all express certain worry that they shouldn't lose these people to other religions, particularly Christianity and, and Islam. What happens afterwards is that in, the 19, in 1928, Ambedkar starts to become a political figure. But to my, to my surprise, when I started to do this, this this investigation, this research, to my surprise, before 1930, Ambedkar is very, very careful of kind of expressing, expressing himself against Hinduism. Um, he even sort of when, when, he, when he's talking about when he's protesting about um, en uh, temple entry and when he's talking about uh, bhakti and Hinduism, he's really not against it. And before 1936, you get Ambedkar more, more, more as a Hindu reformer than as a person that is against Hinduism uh, really clearly. So as you can see, like the type of person that Ambedkar is quoting as being untouchables are people that are related to the Bhakti tradition, which the main, one of the main sort of characteristics is their devotional love. The problem with this type of, of creating this timeline and this link between Bhakti and, and Dalits is that 
even though when Baptists uh, when Baptist saints complain about about being oppressed or being um, <coughs> or, or 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 suffering from discrimination of caste, they really didn't challenge the whole caste system. And in this, for example, in this in this image of of Ravidas, the problem. Uh, with the sense is that they usually wanted to go inside the, the temples. But at the end of the story, us- most of the time, they showed that even though they were considered untouchables, they showed that their heart, in their heart they had a sacred thread. So in the end, they were really not contesting those, those segregation or the caste system in that manner. So um, in 1927, we have Ambedkar expressing himself that that in favor of, of untouchables being integrated with, uh, in Hinduism, to Hinduism. And also afterwards, he explained that when he started the, one of the most remembered protests that Ambedkar made, that he, want, he really wanted to become part of Hindu society. So this is this, is try- this changes the narrative that we often hear about Ambedkar. Someone like Celia, for instance, when she talked about, about the Satyagrahas, which the very notion is very Gandhian, she downplays the, the importance that Ambedkar was given to this because she says that he was not really involved with it. But as you can see, it's, us- it's usually one of the things that Ambedkar is always remembered for. But something happens afterwards. Something happens in, in, 1930, in the 1930s. In 1932 and 1933, Ambedkar gets involved and has a clash with Gandhi about separate electorates. Um, and he changes the way he's going to express himself about Hinduism. But also, something that is, that is usually not tell because we don't have a lot of uh, evidence is that his wife dies in 1935. And the problem with his wife, as the little sort of uh, glimpses that, that we have, is that she was a very Hindu woman and that he constantly asked Ambedkar to take, the, to take her to the temples, although Ambedkar refused because he would claim, <coughs> like, we don't have any business to, to go to the temple because they won't, they won't uh, accept us there. So after... After uh, his wife die, dies, Ambedkar changes his position. He has a clash with Gandhi, and he <coughs> becomes more, more, more critical um, in, against Hinduism. And this is where he starts to tour the country with, well, not the country, he starts to tour uh, Maharashtra because he's also involved with the creation of the Independent Labour Party, and he starts talking about conversion, and he starts talking about his experience in speeches to, to, Dalit, uh, to untouchable communities. And this is where we kind of starts, uh, start to get a glimpse of what Ambedkar, the sort of more revolutionary, uh, or, or Ambedkar as a revolutionary or against a, or as a critic of, of, of Hindu comes about. And what is interesting to me is that in, in these speeches and in when he is addressing 
um, these communities, this community, particularly Mahars, all of his experiences that he tells about untouchability, they are, they are always linked to, some, to something that we can call in-between spaces. So they are linked to his experiences in roads, in railway stations, and in hostels, right? And what I think is important of this is because you can get a feeling that Ambedkar is struggling in these places to know what his role is and how he should sort of behave, whether as an untouchable or as someone that is already a lawyer and whatnot. In African-American studies, <coughs> we get this type of, of narratives in, the, in, in writings about passing. So well, what, how someone that may look or has a, a, a wider complexion, but that himself considers African-American, how is he going to behave in places where he cannot be identified? So when Ambedkar is starting to talk about, about his untouchable experience or his experiences of, of untouchables, they always come in the road. The first one, the first, he, he, he talks about five experiences, really. Um, the first experience has to do with a trip that, that Ambedkar and, and his siblings were doing to visit his father in near Masur in Gorgon. So his point of departure is that although he mentions that he knew that he was an untouchable, for him, being in the village, he didn't realize what this meant uh, because it was a matter of course. He, wasn't, he, wasn't, he, he didn't question him, himself up to that point what it was to be an untouchable. And when he took uh, the train for the first time and when he, when he arrived to, to the railway station, uh, his siblings and, and, and Ambedkar needed to take a tonga, which is a, a bullock cart, uh, to, to go and visit his father. The problem was that nobody was expecting them, and they were well-dressed. He explains that they were well-dressed. They were, they looked, he doesn't say we look like Brahmins, but he kind of gives that impression. And as, uh, uh, and when someone noticed these kids and asked them, what are you doing here all, by, all on your own? Uh, what is going to happen to, to you? They offered the, they offer them their help. But as it was, as it could be expected, after they offer Ambedkar uh, help, they ask him, who are you? And Ambedkar without questioning, because at that point in time, he didn't have that notion that of what untouchability was, he blurted out that we're, we're Mahars, or Mahars, um, which is uh, one of the most prominent untouchable castes in, in, in Western India. And this is where he explained that everything changed from then on. And this is where he starts to talk about <coughs> feelings and how certain places may obscure who you are because you already accepted as a given, and how other places that are in between spaces that where, where you're not particularly defined as either touchable or untouchable may, may bring that question of identity uh, forward. 
the what happened afterwards is that Ambedkar and 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 his siblings um, get someone to take them to 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 see their father, but the person that accepts to take them on the Tonka um, only does it if if they if if they drive the cart. But interesting, after that, after they pay, and after they are a few miles away from the from from the station, Ambedkar tells or Ambedkar says that the that the driver gets on the cart and uh, and, and and therefore he starts to think about again about untouchability. Why is he getting on the cart if he just told us that that uh, we were untouchable and he he wouldn't want to be polluted and whatnot? Um, to make the the story short. Uh, this is like the first time when, when Ambedkar says, like, I felt like an untouchable, we were afraid, we were, uh, and we didn't know what to do. Mm. In the end, uh, they arrive uh, safely, but this is like the first experience he tells to his followers that what, what, uh, about, about him being uh, an untouchable. And as I already said, he mentioned, uh, before this in incident, uh, being untouchable was, uh, was with me a, a matter of course as with many touchables, as well as the untouchables, right? <coughs> in his second anecdote, um, something similar happens. Ambedkar's has, uh, it's 1918, Ambedkar just arrived from America and Europe, uh, and he needed to, to pay his due to the, to the Maharaja of Baroda because he had funded uh, Ambedkar's education. So 